Hello and welcome to the APM podcast brought to you by the Chartered Body for the Project Profession. In 2022, APM is celebrating its 50th anniversary. So throughout the year, the APM podcast has been meeting some of the movers and shakers who have shaped the project profession across the past few decades. This episode sees Professor Adam Bodison, APM Chief Executive, in conversation with the Right Honourable Justine Greening. Justine served as an MP from 2005 to 2019. During her time in politics, she held positions including Secretary of State for Education, Minister for Women and Equalities, and Secretary of State for International Development. In this podcast, Adam and Justine discuss the definition of social mobility, the status of apprenticeships, and where project management fits into the levelling up agenda. Justine also shares her experiences as a co-founder of the Social Mobility Pledge Campaign, which encourages organisations to be a force for good by putting social mobility at the heart of their purpose. Okay, welcome to the APM podcast. I'm delighted to have Justine Greening with me here today. So good morning, Justine. Morning. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, today um, to talk about the very important themes of uh, social mobility and project success, two of my favourite topics. Uh, I'm really delighted that we were able to talk to you about these important areas today. And the areas which I think are both share something in common, which is I think they're often misunderstood or misrepresented uh, out there in the wider world. So I'm hoping that one of the things we can do today is to, is to, is to, is to help people better understand both of these things. So let's start by talking about social mobility and I'd really be interested if you can tell us a bit about what social mobility actually is and why it's important. It's about breaking the link between where you start in life and your background and circumstances shaping where you end up. So it's about freeing up talent really and allowing people to to kind of follow their path whatever their potential is um, irrespective of their background and start. I'm really passionate about social mobility myself. I see myself as um, as a beneficiary of social mobility as as a young person. I came from a fairly disadvantaged background in the in the northwest of England, um, and I like to think I've done okay for myself. Um, and I had um, lots of opportunities, if you like, not necessarily handouts, but a hand up as I went through life. And various people at different stages helped me. And when I talk to people about that, sometimes they they criticise um, the kind of social mobility element of of how I've done, and they said, well. Adam you were lucky you were lucky that you had those opportunities those people who helped you at that time and they say the problem with social mobility is it doesn't help everybody it only helps those who happen to have those opportunities would you say that's a a fair criticism no and I I think in a way it just underlines that probably for too long we've got a bit hung up on the semantics of social mobility And I used to have these debates a little bit in Parliament with people on whether it was just about gifted and talented people getting to the very top. And the reality is it's much more about saying this country needs to free up its talent base. And yes, getting doing well in life shouldn't be about getting a lucky break. So now I'm talking about something that is much more not just a social thing, but an economic challenge that we've got to address. I mean, often my experience, having been on the other side of this and, and, and being responsible for recruiting people, 
is a really diverse workforce is is really important and actually gives you insights that you wouldn't ordinarily have. So given it's an advantage to have a diverse workforce, why wouldn't employers just do this anyway? Why do they need um, to be convinced? Why do we need social mobility campaigns? Uh, is it some kind of misconception that exists in employers' minds? I don't know why it doesn't happen anyway. Well, it's a really good point, and it's it's something that I've thought quite a lot about. I mean, why do we have this as the status quo? Because it does damage our economy. And I think the answer is probably for the people who are getting opportunities, it's fine. And I also think it's you literally can't see weak social mobility. So if you go into a boardroom and maybe there's only one woman there, it's really obvious that there's a, an issue on gender. Same on ethnicity. I think it's just been very hidden. I also think it's sort of how things have always been. So there's that power of inertia. But I do think now, and I also think maybe in the past, you can say economically, it didn't matter as much as it does today. But if you're in a century today where it's all about a knowledge economy, it's all about talent, um, the technology world is very much about creativity and lateral thinking and all of that, then it does become really, really important. So this issue of not getting the most out of your human capital infrastructure becomes really, really important now. And I think we need to see it alongside physical infrastructure as, as being crucial to get right. And, and, and if we did get it right and, you know, we had the education system working perfectly and employers were doing the right things, would the job ever be done? Would we ever kind of get to a point where social mobility is not needed anymore because actually employers are doing the right things? Everybody is getting the, the breaks in life that they deserve. You know, those who work hard succeed and so on. I think you'd get a lot closer towards that. There's never probably going to be perfect equality of opportunity. Um, everyone will have a different view about what that really looks like in a sense in practice. But I think you can get a lot further towards improving the education system so gaps don't open up quite so consistently during young, a young person's life. And I think you can also get employees to think differently about where they get their talent from and to, and to start measuring socioeconomic um, background as well. So I think you can actually get a very long way and, you know, whether it's, that or whether it's um, creating different routes into opportunities, for example, technical education and apprenticeships. I just think there's actually quite a lot of stuff we can get on with relatively quickly and easily that will probably make quite a big difference over the longer term. In your time as Education Secretary, you obviously had an influence over the kind of national system and insights into the system that other people, you know, would, would never have. But did you feel that school leavers uh, were too often guided towards, say, university uh, at the expense of apprenticeships and, and particularly now thinking about project management apprenticeships, but also the kind of bigger picture? I think we were in a situation where actually there hadn't really been a good choice for young people. So I went to university and was the first person in my family to do that. But I really wanted to go to university. But I think if I'd had a slightly different way of learning or interest, I I don't believe that the vocational education routes open to people were good enough. And one of the things that we really focused on when I was at the DfE was improving those technical education routes. So I think You've almost got 
two challenges. One is um, making sure there's a choice for young people that's genuine and they're not having to somehow compromise on the quality of their education if they want to go down a more vocational route rather than a, a more academic route. I, I think the second thing, though, is then making sure they've got the right information to, to make a good decision. Because actually, if you look across different socioeconomic backgrounds, there are some socioeconomic backgrounds where virtually all the young people are going to into you know, university education. So I think if you're probably from one of the most privileged backgrounds in, in the UK, you know, literally three quarters of those young people would head to university. And, you know, whether it's that challenge of thinking, well, it can't possibly suit all of those young people, or conversely, for people growing up in communities more like mine, where, you know, not many people really went to university, those people not thinking about it carefully enough and not thinking about going on to higher education and further education, whether that's technical or vocational. I think there's a lot to be done on just helping young people work through those, work through those choices so they don't just end up almost doing the social norm of what people like them normally do. Sure. And, and, and so you, you talk there about whether vocational routes are good enough, I suppose, and, and, and a genuine alternative. Do you think we're there now? Or do you think apprenticeships are a genuine alternative now? Oh, there's no doubt that apprenticeships are a genuine alternative and, and, and for some young people they're a really smart alternative to getting a degree because they'll mean if you already have a pretty good idea of what you want to do, where you want to work, then actually you can obviously learn and earn at the same time and avoid having all of that student debt. I think for someone like me, I hadn't really worked out what I wanted to do. I was really keen to study economics, so I'd probably still do that all over again. I think the key challenge is we're not there yet on vocational education by any means. So that pathway of, for example, doing T-levels needs obviously huge amounts of work. I think making sure the quality and the consistency of that quality across apprenticeships is really important. And it's probably worth pointing out that billions of pounds of apprenticeship levy gets handed back at the moment to Treasury. So I think on the, the broader level of getting the most out of that investment that could be there to support more apprenticeships, we've got a fair way to go on all of that. But at least we're now in a version of Britain where I think there's a general acceptance that vocational and technical education has to really improve. And I don't expect that political debate to go away, but I, I think it's a bit like the wider social mobility debate. It's much more about how you do it rather than whether you do it. And I, I think that in itself has been a big step forward for us all. Okay, thank you. Now, P PwC did a bit of research for us a couple of years ago, Justine, and it was looking at kind of the size of the project profession and, and, and the value that it adds to the economy. And it came out with a figure of 150 billion gross value added. So it's obviously an, an enormous uh, contributor uh, to the economy. And therefore, in my mind, it must have a, an important role to play around social mobility and, you know, what we hear from governments all the time about levelling up. So I suppose I'm interested to hear from you what, what part should projects and the project profession play in, in both of those areas? And, and also, what is that connection between social mobility and levelling up? Are they the same thing or are they, are they different things? 
So on the first thing, I think it's a really interesting question because what's coming out of all of the work I've been doing both whilst I was at the DfE and, and since more, more overtly working with businesses on driving levelling up is that fundamentally, literally managing that project is probably one of the biggest challenges because it's complex. And so actually, in many respects, delivering it is all about project management and being able to stay on track, mobilise people in the same direction, have things done when they need to be done. There's a lot of it that is, there's a lot of it that is about policy and if you like that philosophy, but there's a massive part of this that is just very, very practical delivery on the ground. And we've got what seems to be, we're talking on the morning that we're about to see who's going to win the leadership of the Conservative Party and become the next Prime Minister. But, you know, Liz Truss has talked about delivery, delivery, delivery. And for me, that's where project management comes into this. And certainly during my time in government, I felt that often the civil service put a huge store on policy development, but actually delivery and project management was not seen quite in the same light. And, and I think... It needs to be if we're going to deliver social mobility. And then your question about social mobility and levelling up. Well, I mean, that's what I was talking about on semantics, really. Um, when we were using levelling up um, at the DfE, in a sense, I'd come up with that phrase for us because I felt people at the time didn't really know what social mobility meant. And it felt a bit think tanky. And so although I was very, very familiar with it and within academic circles, there was a familiarity. I wanted to use a phrase that people could instinctively have a sense of what it would mean for them. And I think they did. Under, and I think we've seen that they, they have got an instinctive sense probably of what levelling up means. Um, but whether you say social mobility, levelling up, equality of opportunity... Um, it is all the same thing. It's about having a level playing field when it comes to opportunity and what you need to do to make sure that happens. Okay. So it was really interesting there because you delved into the area of project delivery um, within the kind of government machine, if you like. Do you think politicians and civil servants know enough about the project profession and the value it can add to their careers? Not even remotely enough, no. It's crucial because you've got to bear in mind for our democratic system... Um, you know, it works by having people elected and they are, as it were, lay people. They've probably got a specialism in some kind of area they worked in before Parliament. But then they're put into running departments. And so, you know, you can end up with a teacher running the Home Office. Um, you can end up with an accountant running the DfE. That's me. Um, but actually, you know, often the challenge is you are literally running those departments. And yet I was lucky in the sense that I'd worked in some big, larger organisations as a finance person. I guess if you're in finance or project management, you're probably relatively numerate and, and you know what you're looking for in terms of how to check if things are on track and what management information you'd need. And I, I think there's a bit of a gap there, definitely for politicians on the nuts and bolts of their own skill set in order to be successful. And then I, I think what I was saying earlier was, I guess within the civil service, the the sort of sexy part of civil service has been all the policy development when actually increasingly 
it really needs to shift to be much more who's great at delivering projects on the ground successfully because you know, there's no point having the best policy in the world if you can't deliver it then it won't come to anything well quite and and i think it's really good now that you know we have the infrastructure and projects authority they're they're obviously i think a real catalyst actually and i think they've been very successful in shifting the the dial on some of the areas you've just talked about but as always with any kind of big system there will be leaders and followers and my sense is there are some government departments who are miles ahead of the curve here and really fly in the flag for um project delivery and and policy delivery i suppose yeah i think that's i think that's right it's interesting because it's always tough in a sense when you're getting that project evaluation and it's flagging up risks and challenges because obviously that means more work needs to be done in in a very practical way but at the same time um it's absolutely valuable if you're if you're a secretary of state for flagging up to you where you need to focus your time i mean if you're going to be successful you don't want to be focusing on things that are all going brilliantly you need a system that focuses you in on things promptly when they're going off track arguably before they've gone wrong um and that's what that project delivery work really focused on i think one area where it could do much much more is frankly education so i think the risk of all of that is also that it's done but it's kind of done separate in a way to um the politics maybe it has to be but if you could get that feedback loop working a bit more from a, an education and development perspective, I think for ministers, you know, that would probably be a really smart thing to do that would make it even more valuable. Sure. We, we've, we've got some APM members, of course, who will be in some of those departments which are a bit behind the curve if you like, um, but they're really passionate and they want to do a good job, but they're perhaps in, in, in a, a fighting against the tide in the system. Um, what advice would you give to them uh, in terms of how they could help to shift the dial within their own department? I think, I think it's having a consistent approach across departments on project development and delivery and, and speaking with one voice. So for example, I think the government finance organisation across government had increasingly learned to work collectively and did work collectively on what good looked like, what good process looked like, how to develop business cases. And, you know, it might all sound a bit bonkers. Um, you know, of course, you'd expect government and civil, civil service departments to develop strong business cases, but that isn't always the case. And... As you said, Adam, some departments are better than others. I would actually say the best, best business cases I had were when I was at the Department for International Development, mainly because there was so much scrutiny on every single penny of spend. Actually, that had led to the department really kicking the tyres on absolutely everything before it was ever signed off. By contrast, when I went into education, you know, much less business case development per se, but a real need for it. Because if you're going to compete, for example, with the Department for Transport on investment, say, in pupil referral units, and you want that investment and you're making the case it should go into that rather than fixing more potholes, then you do need a business case approach that's really bolted down. And it's what I always expected to see as a finance person. I mean, if you don't have that business case, and this is what we really did in, in DFID, you haven't really ever got that parameter, that that kind of game plan against which to then compare progress. And, 
you know, it's it's absolutely crucial if you're going to have strong project management that the project itself is obviously spec'd up well at the very, very beginning. Absolutely. And of course, people and personalities, you can't take them away from projects. In fact, I think they add a lot of value, but they can also uh, insert some challenges as well. One of the things I see a lot and probably the general public see a lot is what we might think of as pet projects, uh, particularly from ministers where they come in and they've got particular things that they want to achieve. Um, I mean, is there a challenge in government of trying to secure backing for for the right projects rather than the pet projects, if you like? Yes, and and that comes down to just good evidence and consistent processes. So the challenge is probably also that because that investment process is so driven by Treasury, you end up with, you know, some moments in the year when a Chancellor might want, you know, an extra announcement on maths or something because that's what they want to do. And they might have a particular amount of money to be able to invest in maths. And so your work, the danger is you end up with a strategy where you're working back from that rather than in that case saying, well, what are we trying to accomplish on closing gaps in maths? How big is that gap? What does that investment need? And then that's a strategy. So you end up with sometimes back to front processes um, in a way that that really isn't helpful and then of course as you say adam you know people do get very wedded to their pet projects sometimes they can be extremely large pet projects and the the risk is that means you don't look at it clear-sightedly um luckily in a weird way the, the regular rotation of ministers across briefs means there's always somebody fresh coming in to look at projects um Maybe too often, but there is, a, you know, you've got to just be conscious of the risk and then and then try and make sure it doesn't dominate your thinking, I always felt. C- coming in with a new pet project, hopefully, this is where I think the civil service have the civil service have an important role to play here. I think in uh, driving the consistency. But anyway, look, we, we've talked about social mobility, and I'd like to talk about the social mobility pledge because this is something I know you've given your personal backing to, and you're really passionate about. Um, and and there'll be employers listening to this, uh, leaders of organisations and corporates that we work with listening to this, who won't know a lot about maybe the social mobility pledge, maybe some them involved but I wonder if you could uh, tell us a bit about what it is and why you decided to get involved and also um, what you would say to those corporates who are thinking about getting more involved with ma- and making the pledge. So the social mobility pledge was was a big push that I launched after I left government. I felt that there wasn't enough focus on the role that businesses can play in connecting people up with opportunity. I think it was pretty obvious to me because that was my career. Um, It had been in the private sector, but I really felt that we needed to drive more businesses to think more strategically about the impact their many, many opportunities can make. So that was the social mobility pledge and it was asking them to get into schools to talk about careers, because I think if you don't know about opportunities, it's very hard to aim for them. I was asking them to open up their doors, particularly on things like work experience, because I think you might be interested in something, but if you can't try it out, then again, it's really hard to to make good decisions. And also the reality is, Adam, that most people or many, many work experience opportunities are organised by brilliant parents for their kids. But if you're going to crack social mobility, then 
you've got to have a much more consistent approach and and that means having more work experience on offer um so that was the second part um and doing apprenticeships as well and then the third part was recruitment and it was saying having hopefully inspired young people on careers that they might have with your company having given them the chance to walk through the door ideally and really roll the sleeves up and and experience what that looks like then you want to make sure that that step into your company doesn't have inadvertent barriers that means you're screening out people before they've even had the chance to shine so we've got on with all of that and and at the core of it is this group of really innovative employers that we've called the Purpose Coalition. And these are the ones that did all of that and then basically were on the phone saying, right, what's next? And there was so much innovation that came out of all the social mobility pledge work. There's about 700 plus organisations part of it now that we just really wanted to find a way to share all of that. So rather than lots of businesses reinventing the wheel on how to be more open and diverse um, individually, we thought, the best thing would be to bring them together. And that's so that's the Purpose Coalition. But actually, it's ended up not just being companies in the private sector. We've ended up with universities who are part of it, um, NHS trusts. We've got councils who are part of it. So actually, it's become a really fantastic ecosystem of very different employers in a way, um, all talking about what they're doing on social mobility and, and sharing their ideas. It sounds fantastic. And I know it's it's something that APM is looking hard at to make sure we can make the pledge ourselves. Um, and I would definitely encourage anybody listening to this to to, to, to have a look at that. Is there a, is there a website that people should, uh, should go to to have a look? Yeah, if you go on socialmobilitypledge.org or if you go on purpose-coalition.com, then you can find out all about it. Um, and of course, I think right now as a country we're sort of headed into this cost of living challenge and in a sense it's the flip side of weak social mobility the people who are going to be on the front line of that cost of living challenge are the people for whom almost certainly getting opportunities has been a lot harder um for for lots of different reasons so i genuinely think that employers can play a massive role on not just helping steer their their own employees, their customers, their communities through the cost of living challenge. I also think if they're willing to say, right, let's look at our opportunities from a socioeconomic perspective, I think they can have a huge impact on longer term social mobility and really breaking that cycle once and for all. Excellent. And it's funny what you were saying about work experience and, and parents. Um, my parents were foster carers um, and they arranged for me to, because um, I wanted to be an accountant, they arranged for me to do my work experience at Liverpool Social Services Finance Department at uh, the financial year end. It was an experience, uh, <laughs> definitely, I will not forget, uh, but uh, probably for an, a, another time. Um, I just have one final question, if, if, if I may, Justine. Um, and that's about um, uh, about equality and, and diversity, and particularly thinking about uh, women who are considering a career in projects. And, and the reason I'm going to want to ask about this is that the project profession traditionally has been seen as associated with uh, construction, infrastructure, telecoms. I think probably unfairly seen as associated with those professions because I think it's pan sector. It's genuinely every single sector. But 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 clearly that means the starting point means it is disproportionately male dominated as a profession and certainly APM we want to do 
any, everything we can to help address that. So I'm just interested in your view on what more you think APM can do, other professional bodies can do, but also government itself with the, the power that it's got and the influence that it's got. So I think it's a really important question. Um, and what's been quite interesting doing all the social mobility work is that often the leaders that I've come across who are probably running the most innovative companies, there probably is an overrepresentation of women compared to what you'd see more widely, say, across the FTSE 100, etc. So I do think there's, there's something around the skill set required for outstanding project management, whatever sector that in, probably absolutely is one that should be open to both genders, obviously, and how you shift it, I think, is a combination. It's it's around definitely enabling everyone to find out what project management really means and really entails. And if you like the, the broad spectrum of sectors you can do it in. Um, and I think the second is role models, definitely. And I think the third is then, you know, companies really perhaps tilting where they put their effort on recruitment and all of that to, to, to really bear in mind they absolutely want to make sure they they reach out to women. It's not about, as it were, positive discrimination particularly. It's really around saying, actually, you know, mixed teams of people we know take better decisions and that is on every single level. So the better the mix, um, you know, the not only better retention, better decisions, better recruitment, and that absolutely includes women. So I think that there's a link between being strong on social mobility and socioeconomic background and diverse on that and being an organisation that can pull all that through and these other areas of diversity that people are already working on. I think they all come together and I think you can learn across all of them. Um, so it'll be interesting whether that's proven in the future but my gut instinct is is they are all inextricably linked but the gender piece is really really important and especially at the moment you know you see some sectors really finding it hard to recruit purely because they've been male dominated and if you're only fishing in half the talent pool then yeah <laughs> you are going to have a problem winning the war for talent so all these things probably have never mattered more than they do now. I couldn't agree more, Justine. Well, thank you very much for, for coming onto the APM podcast. I really appreciated that. And I, and I think our listeners are really um, going to uh, benefit from, from, from the wisdom that you shared. And I hope they will uh, all be encouraged to sign up to the uh, Social Mobility Pledge. Certainly, as I say, APM will be looking at that. My sense is that uh, the project profession has a really important role to play in social mobility. But actually, I think what we're hearing today as well is that social mobility can add huge value to affect project delivery as well so i think it's a it's, it's a win-win so justine thank you very much thanks adam and good luck with all of all of the work i completely agree it's crucial if we're going to crack social mobility you have to improve project management thanks to justine for taking time out to join adam in conversation and to you for listening to this podcast don't forget that you can find out more about the Social Mobility Pledge at socialmobilitypledge.org. If you have any comments, feedback or suggestions, contact us at apmpodcast at thinkpublishing.co.uk. This podcast has been brought to you by APM, the Chartered Body for the Project Profession. 
For more information, visit apm.org.uk.